Two years ago, my partner and I sat down at an office called Travel Bugs, and we purchased some travel activities to do in New Zealand. The guy we were speaking to was funny, informative, and helpful. He was able to get us what we wanted at a fair price. A year ago in Halifax, we made an offer to purchase a home. The woman who was working on our behalf was dedicated, knowledgeable, and experienced. She was able to get us what we wanted for a fair price. And about eight months ago, we did not buy a mattress from a store. The guy who helped us was cagey, rigid, and uninterested. He could not provide us what we wanted. All three of these experiences involved a potential transaction and a knowledge gap. So it's only logical that there's someone whose role it is to facilitate the transaction and bridge that knowledge gap. Our experiences ranged from excellent and memorable to non-existent and forgettable, and from spending lots of money to spending nothing at all. We all have our experiences with sales, positive, negative, and forgettable. What we sometimes do forget is that these experiences have two sides. I'm not sure how much any of those salespeople are still thinking about us, but here I am still remembering those experiences. This episode manifested itself a bit backwards. I knew my father, Robert Syme, had a diverse, accomplished career, and I knew it was related to travel. But if someone asked me, hey, Mike, what does your dad do for a living? I wouldn't know what to say beyond, I don't know, travel stuff. The confusion about my father's career is so ingrained that a running joke and true example in my family is that my older brother told the teacher in first grade that his father worked in a shoe factory. My older brother did not have a clue. When I started talking with my father, it became suddenly clear. He's a salesman, a traveling salesman at that. Although his career has been as long as it has been diverse, this is largely going to be the story of him and a company he started called Regional Approach, and the impact that this company had on his life. Because this experience is not quite straightforward, and it is long, here's a primer of what the company Regional Approach did during its 30-year operation. In a nutshell, Regional Approach was the sales tactic of Robert Syme, Incorporated. He liked living in Halifax, but the large travel operators were not in Halifax, and generally speaking, were not significantly in the Atlantic region at all. He would fly to Toronto and Montreal to approach these large travel-related companies who sold travel products like vacation packages or insurance, and he would offer to expand their influence into the Atlantic region at a fraction of the cost if they did it themselves. Put simply, he sold Toronto and Montreal products to the Atlantic region. It was his regional approach. So if you've ever wondered how salespeople can summon the motivation, how they can tolerate the high possibility of rejection, or even how someone could find things to sell for a 50-year period, stay tuned, because this is Mike Syme with How to Be a Salesperson. Robert, I'm, uh, I'm going to call you Robert today. I hope that's all right. But thank you very much for sitting down with me. I, I always appreciate talking to you. That's quite an introduction, Mike. Um, so uh, I'll try and live up to it. Um, sure you will. So Robert, you've had, and I suppose are still technically having, a pretty diverse career. You've been in a few different fields, 
But do you understand that I have, and some people might find it tough, to put your career into a specific type? Absolutely. And if, 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 if the question was asked, what are you, I can say with pride, I'm a salesman. Okay. Well, I mean, as succinct as that is, the funny thing is it still doesn't really tell anyone what you actually do for a living. <laughs> I mean, I can say, just from what I've witnessed, that I do know you've leveraged whatever your strengths are into different methods of earning income. But beyond that, I can't get too specific. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's a good way of looking at it. And, and I think the key, as far as I'm concerned, whether you're employed uh, by somebody else or self-employed, is to find a career that you're having fun at. To me, it, it's got to be social. I, I enjoy meeting people and I enjoy talking to people. And then in the sales process, I also enjoy the problem-solving side of things and the competitive nature of other products. Where it ended up in travel was, again, because of the influence of my, my upbringing with dad, but it, it was also, uh, for me, something that I liked to do. So one of the benefits, it wasn't the highest-paying job in the world, but one of the benefits uh, was the fact that I got to travel. I, I want to focus for a second on the sales part of your career. I have plenty of examples I can think of growing up where you seem completely comfortable giving impromptu speeches. I assume that this is a trait you've used in your career at some point. Where does it get used? Good observation, and you're absolutely right. I, Well, they call it cold calls, but what you're doing in cold call is, is walking in to see you for the first time. Mm -hmm. Then after seeing you for three or four times, you at least recognize me when I come through the door. And we build a, a, a relationship together, which is what sales is, that you know you can depend on me. But I, th I thrived on that. Let me put it another way. So many people get crippled by new introductions and, you know, the anxiety of cold calling. That doesn't intimidate you? No. Why? I don't know. I, I don't know, but uh, I... Uh, if uh, you said you got to be on a plane tomorrow and and go downtown Montreal and go into the office and see a uh, uh, bunch of people you haven't met, bunch of people I haven't met, and give a presentation, wouldn't bother me in the least. I mean, I think I've inherited that trait to an extent, but ultimately, I do think I'm a bit useless if I haven't done all the preparation. If I go into a presentation or a meeting, I could wing it, but people will know that I've winged it. Of wang it. First of all, don't underestimate. Pre preparation is key. Um, people know right away when you start to talk whether or not that you uh, know what you're talking about. You have to be prepared with answers or prepared to get them answers. So it's all about the credibility. But no, there's the the if if anything, the preparation for me was was critical. And I would uh, stay up to very late at night, and we weren't using PowerPoints. We, you know, I did before my career was ended. But the, the fact is, is that you did all this on paper, and you had handouts, and you had points, and it was like any speaking engagement. But I did that definitely in Toronto and Montreal, considerable times, Atlantic Canada. I did it in Europe. I did it down in the Caribbean, uh, where you went in and. You were just another guy knocking on the door. Can you tell me of a time where it didn't go as planned and that door you were knocking on just stayed shut? Yeah, but, you know, funny as it may seem, um, that's what drove me harder. My attitude would be you just don't know it yet, and you'd leave the situation positively, you know, respectfully and that kind of stuff, 
and uh, you'd find a way to get back. And now that we're talking about it, think of times that I probably had certain accounts that it might have taken me two years to get through the door. But I did, and it became a challenge, and uh, yeah. that's I, I like the challenge. Bob, I certainly think of your um, era as that where people picked a job and they stayed at that job until they retired. Was that the mentality when you were starting out? That that was that was the mentality. That that was the expectations, uh, whether it was from yourself or from your parents. Even with the time that I started to work, a lot of my friends went and stayed with whoever their job was following graduation. But I mean, that's a that's a pretty polar opposite path from the one I know that you took. Well, literally, I was I basically had a maximum of a, not I don't know that I did it consciously, but my lifespan at any particular company maximum was five years, and then I'd just get bored with it. It was, And it was nothing wrong with the company, it was me. I just, it became repetitive. Uh, I didn't find anything exciting about it. Uh, I liked to do things new, and so the next thing you know, I'd be looking for a job. The longest company I spent time with was Regional Approach, and I'm going from memory here, but that was like 30 years, but anything else before that was five years, and I had a few jobs. But the, when you look at it, regional approach, where I got my excitement from, is we changed products. A lot of our clients stayed with us the whole 30 years. But I had other clients as we grew that were short-term products, seasonal products, brand new products. So my excitement and introduction of new products to the travel trade of Atlantic Canada was where I got my continual enjoyment as far as uh, working is concerned and I would be able to hand over or hand off uh, some of the more established accounts to people that were working for me. But it was, uh, I don't want to give people the wrong impression that you had people working for you from day one because you've had a long history of working for other people. So I'm just going to read through some of these jobs and you tell me if I'm being accurate or not. You shoveled coal on a train. No, it was a boat. A boat. <laughs> uh, you were in Air Cadets when you were younger, and I don't think was that a, you weren't paid for that necessarily? Or No, it, uh, it was something like joining the Boy Scouts and so forth. But what I did uh, by going into the Air Cadets, one, it was the first time I took a public speaking course, and it was extremely beneficial to me long term. And the second is I got my private pilot's license out of it. Did you do anything with your pilot's license? I took uh, fishermen in, in fishing. I took hunters in hunting. I took uh, uh, skydivers up, and uh, they jumped out of the plane, and I'd circle around and come back and pick them up, and they'd jump out of the plane again. How long did you do that for? That was for a period of about three years when I was trying to build up enough hours uh, to get my commercial endorsement. So how come you didn't just keep flying planes? Well, um Literally, as I got to the point, I did go and get my commercial endorsement as far as uh, my pilot's license is concerned. But just as I got my endorsement for commercial, the war in Vietnam came to an end. So the thousands of pilots, both on the American side and the Canadian side and so forth, that participated in some form or another in the war came home looking for jobs. 
So me with my single engine endorsement, my night endorsement, and 250 hours, no, I guess it was 500 hours, didn't compare at all to the guy came back that flew helicopters, heavy transport, and jets, and had thousands of hours. So I went to the back of the bus in terms of recruitment, and so it was, for me, uh, an open and shut case. So I closed, I, I, I stopped that dream, um, went back to university for a while, and then um, came out and started again. Tell me about your university experience, because I have a feeling that wasn't particularly engaging for you. No, I, I certainly got benefits out of university, but university to me was something that I felt I needed in my resume so that they knew I had university. It worked on that behalf, but my uh, my scholastic achievements at university are, are not worth talking about. So you weren't a straight-A student? No, um, and uh, certainly it uh, it suited my social skills. From my perspective, there was there was a lot to be learned through university, which I so I'm not belittling that in in any way. But it wasn't it was a means to an end for me. So getting I guess getting a BCom just was that competitive edge. Yeah, and it was, and so be it. It wasn't what you told us, but <laughs> I wasn't allowed to no. tell you. <laughs> well, that's quite all right. What about your job working for Air Canada around that same time? With the flying, I also had a job just to pay for the flying, and I worked at what they call the counter, so at the airport. And so I was at the Stanfield Airport, and when you'd come out and have a ticket at that time, and as against the electronic tickets, and I'd be the guy standing behind the counter and take your ticket, check your bag. It was an important part of my career because working at the airport, people come to the airport with excitement, love to flying and all excited about it and have expectations. You get people that are tremendously nervous. You get dignitaries in the sense of people that think they're dignitaries and they come up to the counter and they're extremely demanding. And it was a job that I think was probably the most important job that I had in my career to prepare me for my career because you had to deal with many different personalities. If, if you had a, a flight checking in and uh, you had 210 people on board, uh, you may as well said you had 210 different scenarios and you had to get them on board in time, put them at ease or at rest or settle their concerns and smile the whole time and get them on. And in the meantime, you know, you might then get an announcement that the fog has rolled in and the flight is now down, uh, delayed two hours and people are missing their connections. And you had to handle those experiences nicely and have them satisfied. And it was tremendous. It was exciting. It was a, a lot of work, but you, uh, if you didn't like people and you couldn't handle the differences, uh, you'd, it'd be stressful. But for me, I thrived on it. As I said, I don't want people to think that Robert started out managing a staff. It's easy to forget that there was 15 years of solid work experience before he started his own company. We don't have time for a play-by-play -play of the whole timeline, so here's the cliff notes. In 1963, Robert graduated from high school. He then shoveled coal on a boat. He peeled potatoes. But he developed an appetite for flying as a result of the air cadets. In 1968, he worked at the Air Canada check-in desk to supplement his flying career, which came to a halt as the North American pilots started returning from the war in Vietnam around 1971. After completing his Bachelor of Commerce at St. Mary's University in Halifax, he wanted to step outside 
of the travel shadow of his father and find greener financial pastures. So he sold X-ray film to hospitals in the Maritimes, and then he got promoted to territory in Ontario. But the ocean kept calling back. Robert took an opportunity to get back to the Maritimes and back into the business of travel. A company called Sunflight offered him a role as regional vice president with the intent to grow the charter vacation market in the Atlantic. What is the charter vacation market, you ask? Do you remember that vacation package you recently took to Keokoko, Veradero, Punta Cana, or Cancun? Or any of those popular all-inclusive destinations? Well, before Robert started working for Sunflight, at least for Maritimers, those options didn't really exist. After a successful five years with Sunflight, another company called Eastern Provincial Airways headhunted Robert to be president of their tour division, Caramac Tours. Only a year and a half later, in 1979, EPA was acquired by Canadian Airlines. Canadian Airlines already had a tour division, and they didn't need Caramac Tours, and they didn't need another Robert Syme. So Robert took the severance package and enjoyed the summer of 1979. However, by the time barbecue season finished, nobody called offering a job. So he packed up back to Toronto in search of opportunity. Frustrated from what turned out to be a wild goose chase, he came back to Halifax and thought, I'll just start my own company. Now let's get back to Robert's narrative, just before his company, Caramac Tours, was sold to Canadian Airlines. So if you decided to stick with the company that you were with as it was sold, you would have had to move back to Toronto? I had to go to Toronto, and, and for whatever reason in, in my psyche is that, you know, life, my, balance in life is a big thing to me. If I went to Toronto, although it would be extremely exciting, I wouldn't have any control of my time whatsoever. Uh, you know, you'd be, it'd be common to get on a plane every week and go to some exotic destination and come home then do something in the form of building a package and so forth. All stuff of which I would love to do, but quite frankly, I don't. I know it wouldn't give me. I'd be a statistic rather than a, a happy person, let's put it that way. So my effort was, as I sat through the summer, because when, I, when the company was, uh, the last company was Caramac, basically sold out, and that was in the spring, and so I had a departure bonus, so to speak, I had a wonderful summer, but all of a sudden it became fall and the winter winds were going to be blowing and my phone hadn't rung off the hook as well as, as much as I was well known by anybody that sort of said, you know, I've got a wonderful job for you. So I looked at it and I said, this is a, this is a great time. Can I take my skills and form my own company? So, I mean, you could have done something else, right? I mean, I can't imagine it was as black and white as you put it. Either go to Toronto and stay employed or stay in Halifax and start your own company. Did you consider any other fields did, besides travel? What I learned very quickly when I looked at alternatives other than travel is I have made a considerable investment in having my name known across Canada in the travel industry. I've been very active in the association um, locally and nationally and all that, and I've made a lot of great contacts so that for me to decide that I was going to sell cars or insurance or investments, I'd be starting all over again. Right. And even though I was at times looking for a change, 
when it came back to it, I said, what is my trump card? What, what, what do I have in my toolkit that the other guys don't have? And that was the contacts and the experience and the maturity. And uh, I knew my way around town. Okay, so you stuck with travel. You started a company. How did that begin? In 1979, I took a model which was unique to Canada at the time, but not unique in other, in other words, uh, other industries had this model. It just wasn't in the travel industry. And I called it regional approach travel marketing. And I went out and went to Toronto and looked for products that weren't in Atlantic Canada, but wanted to be in Atlantic Canada, but just, you know, it wasn't high on their list. So I made it easy for them to get started. I would increase their sales more economically than they could do for themselves, which was always my guarantee that uh, if I couldn't produce the sales and earn them more profit, then they could say goodbye to me. It started in 1979, and I was 34, I think, at the time. It was planned just as simply as that. It was it was something that I saw as an opening, and um, it, it treated me well. So as you said at the start, regional approach broke your trend of staying at companies for five years. Was it because it was so diverse in its workload? The only commonality, it was in the tourism and hospitality industry. Did that ever make it complicated to keep making sense of? It, it was something that I was comfortable with, and, and, and it gave me excitement. Um, but sometimes I have to admit it confused, confused the staff. Technically speaking, what was your position at Regional Approach? Well, on the card, it said president. What did the staff think of this kind of fly-by-night behavior? If they see the president of their company, who I know has described himself as having a short attention span, did they ever think, geez, what's this guy doing? Constantly. And nothing like having a few sociables after work on a Friday afternoon to uh, loosen the lips and somebody would say to me, Bob, why are we doing this? And uh, I'd have to stop and think sometimes to answer the question. But it worked, and uh, I would say we evolved into a, a staff that really related well to it. it we weren't all like-minded. It's important not to be like-minded, but it, it, it was certainly something that they got used to. So as your company started growing, what did you do with the odds and ends that come with that success? Like the stuff you just aren't interested in but still needs to get done. We've talked in the past about you know my lack of enthusiasm for doing anything accounting. All I want to make sure was there was enough money in the bank account so that I could pay the staff and do uh, the things that were necessary. But I, I hired uh, an accountant. His personality was, uh, in a sense, entirely different than mine. Uh, he said, what do you want me to do? I said, I want you to take anything financial, explain it. And he did exactly that. And I didn't have to worry about it. I'm kind of waiting for the but here, because it seems like regional approach was exactly what you were looking for. The whole thing wasn't all roses. Like it, it came to one point that uh, I literally lost all my accounts. I was right back to square one, had to let everybody go. What happened? So when you, uh, when you look at, at the history of a company, you hope it's a lot of growth and profitable growth. But things happen. So the accounts that I had, I had grown with them. And I had the relationships in the head offices 
that everybody felt it was fine. They were happy and they couldn't get any more and they couldn't save any money by putting in their own person. But then things that are beyond your control and just how these things happen is Voyager Insurance was sold to the Royal Bank. For the record, Voyager Insurance was Regional Approach's most valuable client. They sold their travel insurance to Atlantic Canadian customers through Regional Approach. It was an exciting client because Robert had to figure out how to sell something he's never sold before. Travel insurance. Voyager Insurance was sold to the Royal Bank. They kept me for another year handling the account, and it was really more of a courtship to say, why don't you come to Toronto and work here? At RBC. At RBC. And um, take on the national scene of of growing this business across the country. But at this point in the mid-90s, you would have had three small kids to consider in such a move. And this is a huge point, and I'm glad you bring it up because uh, I did have kids that were part of my uh, thinking process. So if you did move to Toronto, how would that have worked for your family and kids? To flatter myself, the, the bank was anxious enough to have me there. They even offered that they would put them into private school in Toronto. Again, I just, as much as I like the big cities, the joy that I always had was I could fly back here. So I'm a true blue noser, so to speak. So they kept me for a year under the uh, uh, contract, but we knew eventually that if I kept saying no, then it was it was over. So I lost a major portion of my income, which was the insurance line. Next to that, the uh, the tour company I was representing went bankrupt. There was probably eight people that I uh, let go kept one who was just being more charitable to me because she uh, knew I needed help in some areas, which I did. And then eventually we parted company. Now, when I lost these two accounts, one, it taught me that I should have, well, more eggs and more baskets because, you know, you you should spread out your revenue sources so that if one leaves, it's not a crisis. My pie was three, a third, a third, and a third, and I lost two-thirds of it. And the last one that was left wasn't a big uh, uh, money maker. So to try and start that and replace that again was tiresome. It was, I just wasn't up for for the challenge. In that process, you're sort of sitting there and you're saying to yourself, do I want to rebuild this and literally start over, or do I want something else? And the phone rang. And it was a major travel company, uh, a retail travel company, travel agency. And the owner was on the other end of the line and said to me, how would you like to come down and talk about a job opportunity? The role was basically designed for me. And I went in as a vice president and was in charge of supplier relationships, trying to maximize the return that the agency could get on the travel product. So I went in with a specific focus and challenge, and this is met very positively because it was a positive uh, experience, and they wanted somebody that was entrepreneurial in nature. What I learned is entrepreneurial in nature to me in the level that I was at has an entirely different definition to somebody like the RBC or to the travel agency group. So 
I knew after probably the first month that I was there that I made the wrong decision, but I made a commitment that I wanted to make this thing successful. And I ended up staying for five years and learned a tremendous amount about the retail travel business that has benefited me the balance of my career. But what I liked, it, it, it suited my purposes, is in moving with the retail side of it, it was a field as much as I knew well, I knew well from being on the other side of the desk, not being on the inside. The knowledge in this company in terms of what they did was probably one of the best in Canada that exists here in Atlanta, Canada. And uh, they're now national. So it was a great challenge, and, and every bit of it, the, the challenge of working with other people in the departments, the challenge of, of working as a team for me is against making the decisions, were all things that I knew I, had, I, I couldn't do on a long-term basis, but in the process were extremely eye-opening. But after five years, I just couldn't do it anymore. I, I had uh, spent a period of that time looking for a job, and it's hard to look for a job when you have a job. And there's a variety of things that came up. But anyway, I went in one day and uh, I resigned. What happened? Did anything specific occur to make you finally resign? The day came up. I just wasn't doing a good job anymore. And I, I just had to go in and admit that and say I'm gone, but no hard feelings. And we left, we left on very good terms. To go do that and then say, okay, what am I going to go out to the market on? What have I got to sell? And so I had to reinvent myself again. And what I, what I did was almost went back to where I started. I went back to working from the house, but I, had, I, I took the experience that I had of working with a large, well-run company, and I turned that into a sales training course that I went out on contract to major travel companies across Canada and uh, did training to their staff. It was the type of thing that I, I looked at and said, you know, I can, I can use this to take me till I retire. Well, it went, went well beyond that. And it was uh, so much fun and such a challenge. So I was still doing things that I like, still meeting people that I like, but I was in a training mode at that point more than a selling mode. So what, what were you actually training? Was it like a course? or an education system or something like that? It was an education. It was, uh, it was a, a, a program where you just taught the counselors to be more aware. For the record, Robert is referring to travel agencies here and the staff inside them. So if you go to the mall and walk by a travel agency, the people sitting at the desks that you can see are what he's referring to as counselors in this example. Counselors to be more aware, each one of them, if you take this as the model, everyone in a, in a, in a sales position is a profit and loss center. So every, every counselor that you walk into an agency and see five counselors, you've got to know that every counselor is making you money. And strange as it may seem, a lot of them didn't have systems in place that could tell whether you were individually profitable or that just the office was profitable. The other part is in your individual profit mix of, a, of, of counselor and their selling, that they're making more money on some products than they are on other products. And if they just found a way to shift some of that business into the more profitable one, 
but you can have literally the same product and the same credibility and move them over to another product and be making 4 or 5% more, which is huge on a book of business. So my role was to, to go in and train and make the counselors more aware and the office managers more aware of exactly where their money and their revenue was coming from. Okay. Well, for the both the listener and myself, we're learning what you did in the 2000s because I did not know that you did this. This is the first time I'm making this connection. Robert, do you realize that what you're describing, that you sold as a service, are some pretty basic accounting principles? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you're identifying your high-margin products, looking at the profitability on a deeper level than just the agency. I mean, it's mostly focused on the revenue side, but that's all accounting. Yeah. No, it's funny you... Uh... You, you bring that up, but you see, human beings, which includes me, are great rationalizers. And I rationalized that this was a product that they needed, and I could communicate it, and I could have fun doing it, and I could make them more money, and I could make money. Well, I guess you, you just can't peg a person. I, <laughs> I never would have thought that I'd learned that my dad taught accounting for almost 10 years. I truly assumed that you had taught sales techniques or how to be more convincing, something like that. Well, and, and again, you're, you're, you're thinking for me because the, the number one part of it, and I'm sure you've heard of it, but this was very new in business period, if you can imagine, but you're, I'm sure, more than familiar with the 80-20 rule. So 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your products, and they might be selling 100 products. And they could be much more efficient selling the 20% and, and make more money. So how did, the, how did the staff of these travel agencies respond to some guy coming in and teaching them about profit mixes and telling them to sell the high margin products? Most people don't consider themselves salespeople. That's oh, I'm not in sales. I'm a consultant. Well, I mean, I don't know how true it is, but that's probably because of the stereotype where salespeople are a little pushy and perhaps a tad self-interested. Well, I hope it's not true, but uh, the but you're, what you're saying is correct. So my my first thing was to get people, uh, first of all, to be understand the difference in terms of revenue and where it was, but the other part was how to, through that focus, is spend more time with your client, quality time, building the relationship through selling, but they didn't like the word selling, so I'd call it building rapport, making a relationship. It worked well from the point at that point of view, but if I come back, because I told you from the beginning I'm a salesman and proud of it, I look at, and I've used the example when I'd be doing seminars of people in the room, and they'd say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a salesperson. So I said, when you needed the car on Friday night, you didn't sell your dad on how you needed the car. Well, yeah, but that's different. So we're all selling. All you have to do is like the product that you're selling, and it's not selling. So if you're convinced that what you're doing is correct and, and you can stand behind it, uh, whether you're selling cars or whether you're selling hotels at destinations or whether you're selling training, um, you're selling. It's pretty apparent to me at this point that for most of these paid positions that you've had or created yourself, it doesn't really sound like you're doing it entirely for the paycheck. Could, you couldn't be better. The, I, I, my reward, although I had, had a survival instinct, I, I certainly had to find ways of revenue, but the fact of life is 
the biggest joy to me is when I'd have somebody come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. And to, to change a person's mind to whether you call it selling or whether you call it revenue or whatever it is. So I did have to change the words sometime depending on the, on the audience. But the fact is, is that if you could, if, if you could take them away from that general stigma of saying, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, the way you, I, I have a hard time getting these words out. You called me a sleaze, <laughs> but if if you turned around and you and, and you were able to change the focus so that they could go in the next day and be more natural of it, and and let me give you a crazy example. A guy goes into a travel agency and walks up to the to the person at the desk, and uh, she barely looks up because or he because they're busy on the computer. Have a seat. I'll be with you in a minute. Now, here's a client that just walked in. You have no idea what they want. And you're telling them, sit down. I'll be with you in a minute. Now you're finished, and then you roll your chair around, and you look at them and say, so how can I help you? You haven't said hello. My name is Bob Syme. What is your name? Or anything like that. And the guy says, See, well, I'm, I'm looking at a cruise. And her next question is, excuse me, because the, the industry is primarily female, so I get, that's an old habit, but you, you look at the person and your first thing you say to them, what's your budget? Yeah. Now, what a way to say, you know, that, that's crazy. Instead, you should be saying, a cruise, that's wonderful. Have you been on one before? I just took my first cruise two years ago. I had such a great time. I was interested to see if I could go on another. Yeah, so what, what were you on? I'm not sure, but it was a big boat. That's great. That was a great cruise. Did you enjoy it? Yes, but blah, blah, blah. You're building a relationship. Now, that way, you're, you have more of a chance of the person even not making a decision then, but more coming back because you took an interest in them, mm-hmm. as opposed to the person that goes to three travel agencies in the mall, gets a cost from each one of them, and goes with the best price, and you never see them again. So you've wasted your time. Where if they say, well, the the costs are basically the same, but I'm going to go back to ABC travel because so-and-so seemed to really know what they were talking about. Uh, I mean, because ultimately, I I guess if you're spending $1,500 or $2,000 on a trip, the majority of people aren't going to care about an extra 100 bucks if they actually seem to have a relationship with the person on the desk, if they feel like they can trust them. Well, that's that's exactly right. And, And that's the way that any product that I've put together... It's been not put together on price. There's got to be value, but there's a big difference between value and price. And so it might, you know, the trips that I, I've done over time to Israel are the most expensive on the market. And every time I've done one, they've been sold out. We don't have time to get fully into it, but Robert has been organizing and leading tour groups to Israel for the last 10 years and to date has brought over 300 people to and from the country. And every time I've done one, they've been sold out. But a lot of it takes just that derve of going in and saying, here I am, and I got something you want. What about the actual day-to-day of the industry, like the travel side of it? Like when I was younger, you seemed to be always flying somewhere. Do you know you're, you're a real testament to airline safety? Well, <laughs> well I, uh, I never had a bad flight. Uh, I've been on lots of different airlines, lots of different situations, and in a position very often, and this is when you hear the guys refer to the good old days, it doesn't happen today, that I would be 
upgraded just by the pure nature of my business to either business class or first class. The community of, of the Canadian tourism industry and the, the, the fact of the position and the people you were with, you'd go to a hotel, you'd automatically be upgraded to a suite. I mean, it was a, and that's what made it so much fun. I mean, where else, uh, you know, with other, whatever money, even though I say, and it, 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 it is true that the, the, the travel industry didn't pay as well as uh, other industries, but they weren't getting that kind of lifestyle. Well, I mean, you may not be getting the same income as if you spent your life selling investments, but you're kind of getting that same lifestyle anyway. Like if you're getting the upgraded hotel rooms or first-class flights, that's the stuff that you'd just be spending your money on if you had the different income. Still, though, even with your travel career, the outside perspective, I mean, it does look like you have that super fancy, high-profile lifestyle. Well, I, I remember one time I, I left from Halifax, flew to New York, did some business, flew to Tenerife, Tenerife back to London, England, and back to Halifax all in the period of a week. Well, that's pretty glamorous when you look at it, especially if you're 25 or 30 or something like that, and away you go. But at the end of the day, it was pretty tiresome. Mm. And I wasn't there to see Big Ben. I was there to see and make uh, make deals which would benefit the, the, the product that I was uh, traveling all very exciting and all stuff that I love to do, but certainly had the misconception that it was all play and whining and dining. At the very least, all that travel in one week would lead to some very long days. Oh, yeah. But then on top of it, presumably you have to look your best as well with some pretty important first impressions. Oh, tremendously. In those days, too, it was all full suits and ties and, and uh, you know, you, yes, and you had to be able, there was lots of times, specifically since we're on the same story I'll use in Tenerife, is that you really can feel inadequate, and I'm saying self, from a self perspective, is that because the people you're with speak a minimum of two languages. Besides Spanish, they'd be speaking English, or they could speak German, or they could speak French. And I'd be sitting at a table, I can remember it well, with uh, uh, 10 people, give or take, uh, around a dinner table and the wine flowing and the discussions going on. And they all changed their language. I'm one out of 10. And all those other people changed their language and we spoke the whole night in English. And I'm saying, wow, you know, I I can't even... I can't even respond other than the fact of a thank you or hello or goodbye. So it, it, it opened up your eyes tremendously. It was, it was, it was constant education and self-awareness. So those, those things um, all make it exciting too, but you've got you to gotta be a personality that's comfortable in sitting in that environment as, uh, as, as opposed to just... You've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Comfortable in being uncomfortable. I'm sure when you got back from these different places, people would ask you, like, how's Tenerife? How's blah, blah, blah? And you probably couldn't give a very educated answer. And that is a common story of people on the road. They'll say they just got back from London or Toronto or uh, Hawaii or whatever. And, uh, oh, gee, you know, the the response is, that's great. How were the beaches? Well, you weren't anywhere near the beaches. I mean, you could see the beaches, but you, you couldn't go to the beach. So it's it's a common thing, and, and, and if, if anything, in hindsight, what, what a lot of people will say that, that do travel for a living 
is they wish there are different times that they had taken extra days to see it as a tourist. Mm -hmm. But the fact was they not only had family, but they had work to do at home. So it became, well, next time I'll spend a little more time. So, uh, but it was still, it was still exciting and fun. Personally, even if I'm not fully taking in the surroundings, Mm. from a work perspective, the change of pace must, I think, would be pretty enjoyable. Yeah, but you were still, from a point of view of the way you conducted business, as you say, you were staying in nice places, which you would prefer to be staying there and sharing with your family. You were eating at nice restaurants. None of these things were hard for me to put up with. You were drinking nice wine. You were meeting nice people. You were expanding your experience, and uh, that was your job. Yeah. So it, uh, unlike sitting downtown at one of the government offices, I found this a lot more exciting. So you started Regional Approach in 1979, but is this the type of company that, if you needed to or were in a different place, could start that company today? It's, it's a good question to say, could I, could I turn around and open up Regional Approach today? And my first answer is no. But I think what I would be doing, because I, I always have to go to something, is with my experience as a hobby doing the, the, the group tours to Israel, I often think that if I had started that idea 20 years ago, that I would have a very solid business because the aging demographics have lots of money and lots of time. And they just want to be taken care of in a, in a, in a very good way. In a travel perspective. It, yes. Right? Thank you. Thank you for that clarity. Um, so that's what's so, been so fun about doing the uh, Israel trips, because I really love ex- exceeding expectations. And as a result, those tours have been extremely successful. If I had the inclination and the energy, I would very easily be doing one to Havana. I would very easily be doing one to Chile. I would very, there's a, a half a dozen or a dozen places, but I'm not interested in building a company again, and I'm not interested in having a staff again. I'm interested in, in my uh, reaping my benefits from, from what I've done. So the answer, would regional approach be feasible, not in the format that I did it? Are there still opportunities for a successful business in tourism and hospitality? Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for sharing this story. Uh, There's plenty of business and sales tips to take home, and personally, I'm glad we had this conversation. Well, I'm glad we've done it too. You've brought back a lot of good memories, and I hope somebody out there finds a good use of the information. Well, it turns out he never made a shoe in his life, let alone worked in a factory. I guess I'm not too surprised. You can't earn money by just being a salesperson. You have to be selling something. And how are you going to sell that something? Are you going to sell within the security of an organization or on your own with all of the risk and reward that comes with it? It took some trial and error, some career changes, some connections, some luck, and more effort than I can truly understand. But Robert navigated his way down that career plinko board of life and found his happy place in the travel industry, in sales, as an entrepreneur. It didn't happen overnight, and it required him to reinvent himself a couple of times, sometimes out of desire, but sometimes out of necessity. 
Being observant is a trait, but spotting opportunities is a skill, one that you can develop. All it takes is putting yourself out there and watching to see what works and what doesn't. But to take that next step and to act on those spotted opportunities, well, I'm sure it does get easier with practice. Because nothing ventured, nothing gained, as they say. I've never really heard my father talk negatively about his career. It's an enormous cliche, but he really did seem to be having fun throughout, which I'm sure helped make it seem a little less like work. Although his hours were certainly more variable than average, and there was certainly his fair share of stress, one thing he's never had is a countdown to retirement. So the next time you hear from me, we're stepping over to a career that I really don't know anything about. I'm talking about architecture. I know they design buildings on paper, but what about the construction? Do they do the interior? Does an architect look at the doorknobs of a building? Are they more like artists or are they more like engineers? I don't know. So find out about the education and the business of architecture when I speak to Halifax-based architect Anna Sampson. She has over 10 years of work experience and she's designed projects all around Nova Scotia. I'm sure she can clear some things up for me. To learn more about the life of an architect, tune in next time on How To.